It's highly likely that you have never heard of a woman named Iram Shanu Shamila. She's a civil rights activist from India. She has been pleading with the Indian government to suspend what is known in India as the Armed Forces Special Powers Act. The act in India gives the government special powers to make decisions concerning um, the protection of India in certain zones. One of those zones is Kashmir, which is on the border with Pakistan and is a disputed territory and has had lots of terrorist activity. She's protesting, she's pleading for the suspension of the act because she believes, and there are lots of other folks in India believe, that the act has been used for those good purposes, but it's also been used to suppress internal division within the country of India as a whole. What is perhaps most noteworthy about her protest, her pleading with the government, is maybe not what it is she's pleading for, but the length of time that she has been pleading and the manner by which she's gone about it. See, she's been pleading with the Indian government to stop the act for 16 years by way of a hunger strike. It's the longest known hunger strike, and it's still ongoing. Now, you say, how could it be ongoing after 16 years? In India, it's against the law to commit suicide. And so what the government has done is they've arrested her repeatedly and they insert a feeding tube through her nose and they feed her. So for 16 years, she has not eaten. But for 16 years, the government has intervened to keep her alive so that her protest, her pleading with the government, would go on. This morning, we're in Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 16. If you're using the Church Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 12. Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 16. Let's read together. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. 
The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to them. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Verse 31. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning as we come to it. It challenges us in places that are difficult. And, um, and so we would just ask this morning that you would give us discernment and you would open our hearts and our minds. Let us receive your word. Let us treasure it in our hearts. Let it work its intended purposes for us that we would be your children giving you glory in the things that we do and say and think. In Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very interesting passage, obviously, not something that um, you're familiar with, probably not something that you've ever encountered in your own life with respect to your relationship with God. Abraham in this passage is quite bold. And it comes out of this question that the Lord himself asks, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Bound up in that is that the Lord had heard the outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew of uh, the wickedness of these two cities, and so he was um, investigating that. Were it to be true, then the Lord was going to act. He brings Abraham in because Abraham is, as we've already seen in in the, the chapters previous to this, Abraham represents the promise of God. God is going to bless the people and the nations through Abraham, through one man, through this man that God has called, this polytheist that God has called and worked in his heart and in his life. God is going to use this one individual and his family to bless the nations. 
In the process of all of this in this chapter, we see Abraham acting and serving and working as a priest. Not only to his family, but to the nations. He is beginning this process of being a blessing to the people. And I want you to see it as we work through it. Abraham pleading. And there's three things that he is pleading for. The first is this. Abraham is pleading for God's name. I want you to notice that Abraham's initial approach and request of God is really this series of questions and and statements that he and God have back and forth. And those questions that he asks appeal to God's nature. He is the just judge of all the earth. And Abraham is convinced. He just knows that God cannot and will not go against his nature or his name. And so he asks the question, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And what Abraham is asking, he's saying, listen, God, if in Sodom and Gomorrah there are some righteous individuals and you go down there and you destroy those cities, won't you be destroying some of the righteous? And surely you wouldn't do that, right? And so we see this back and forth. And the initial is, if there are 50 righteous in the city, if there are 50, surely you won't sweep them away with the city, right? couple of things. We learn here that Abraham knows God. That's really, it, it comes through in the passage. Now you think about the relationship. It's been a number of years since Abraham was called out of Ur. And in those years, Abraham has obviously began to learn about who God is. He knows that he is the judge of the earth. He knows that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing. He knows from his own personal interactions with God that God is merciful, that he is loving, that he is kind. Abraham knows via personal experience that God is long-suffering, patient with sinners. He knows this because he has tested the patience of God. And so he comes and he speaks to God and he approaches God on the basis of who God is. He knows that God is discerning. He knows all of these things and he knows them because he has listened and he has learned and he has observed the way in which God has dealt with him. Abraham knows God, and that's why he comes and he approaches God the way that he does. That is why he is pleading with God, because he knows God's character. I want you to think about that. Because that is really rather, it's a remarkable thing to say, really. That Abraham, a mere man, knows God. I mean, just think about what we are saying when we say that. He knows God well enough 
that he would go and he would plead with him on the basis of this understanding. In the ancient world, this would have been completely unthinkable with respect to any other deity. Most people believed that the deities, that the gods were there. They were capricious in the way that they acted. They were completely, you, you, you never knew if they were going to go right or if they were going to left or they were going to come down the center. You just never knew. And most people believed and, and understood that the, that the gods and the heavens uh, basically had you at their whim. And they acted in ways that were capricious. John MacArthur, a preacher out in um, Simi Valley, California, uh, used to tell a story. I've heard him tell it several times about a, an, a time when he got on an airplane and he was flying to from California to Arizona to speak. So he got on the airplane, said it was southwest, and uh, and he, you know, got a seat and that sort of thing, sat down, and there was a Muslim gentleman sitting next to him. Now, John MacArthur is one of those guys that can get on an airplane and start reading his Bible, okay? Remember, I'm the guy that gets on the airplane and is looking out the, the window to make sure the wings are still attached. So I never get to have these sorts of conversations with people, okay, because I'm too nervous. But he, this guy looked over and saw that he was reading a Bible, and so he started asking him some questions. And his initial question was something along the lines of, I see that you're reading a Bible. And John Mark said, oh, yes. And he said, uh, I have a question for you. Can you tell me the difference between a Catholic, a Baptist, and a Presbyterian? Okay? And uh, completely disjointed question, right? But um, John MacArthur said, he tried, to, he tried to give him the answer and that sort of thing. But in the course of the discussion, they begin talking about the differences between Christianity and Islam. And one of those things that John MacArthur said he, he, he mentioned was that he knew God personally. And he said the look on this gentleman's face was like, you know God personally? And he jokingly said, like, what are you doing on Southwest? I mean, they don't even assign seats. But in the course of this discussion, he expressed that he didn't know Allah personally, and he hoped that Allah would forgive him of his sins one day. To which John MacArthur asked him, on the basis of what? You don't know Allah well enough to know if he will forgive your sin or not? That is the general way in which people deal with most deities. The God of the Bible, the God of Christian theism, is completely different than that. He has made himself known to us. And Abraham knows him. He goes to him. He, in this passage, is pleading with him on behalf, first, of his name. One author said that dealing with other deities is like dealing uh, with a letter from Senator William Allison of Iowa. Follow me here. 
Once Allison dictated a long letter to his secretary, a letter that was an answer to some pointed questions from his constituent. When he had finished, he asked of his secretary, what do you think of that reply? His secretary hesitated but politely said, to be entirely candid, candid, Senator, it is difficult to gather exactly what you mean. The Senator was gleeful. Admirable, admirable. That's precisely the idea. The God of the Bible is not like that. He has made himself known to us. And that is why Abraham is able to go and to plead with him. And in this sense, he is pleading for God's name. He knows who God is, and he doesn't want the world, he doesn't want the nations to think that God is capricious, unloving, not patient, not long-suffering. And so he asks him to spare the city. The bedrock truth in all of that, one author said, the pillow that Abraham leans on is in verse 25, where he says, far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? That is Abraham's go-to. Now let me ask you a question. Do you long do you long for God's name to be known the right way? Do you know do you long for the nations to know God, to know that he's merciful and kind and gracious and just? Yes, just too. Do you long for the world to see that or or does it matter to you? Abraham was concerned for the name of God. Let's put it another way. Have you ever had a situation in which you knew someone? I just had this happen. And uh, I, I got a call from a young man over in Yazoo City this past week. And he was having trouble. I had met with this guy for a couple of years, years ago, and, and um, his grandmother had recently died. He was homeless, and so he called. And he said, I don't know where else to turn, Pastor Sam. And so I had a conversation with him on the phone. And I directed him to some individuals in Jackson, Mississippi. And I said, you call these guys. They're good guys. They will help you. I started getting some texts, and I talked to him again. He was very frustrated. And uh, and he said, I I don't think these guys, and, and he started down this road. And I said, ho, 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 hold on. I know those men. I don't know about those men. I know those men. And what you're saying is not true. They want to help you. They will be there for you. Um, Perhaps they're extenuating circumstances right now, but you can trust me that I know them and I know they are men of their word and they will help. And sure enough, and not too distant future there in a couple of hours he had a breakthrough and help began to come and they were they were moving they were in action to assist him but he had a different opinion there for a few minutes and i had to help him understand no this is their character 
That's what Abraham is doing here. That's what Abraham hopes the world will see and know about God. Do you pray that way? Do you, do you seek the glory of God like that? Or is it more about you? That's what we tend towards. Abraham is concerned about the name of God. Here's the second thing. I want you to see that Abraham is pleading for a city. Actually, he's pleading for two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Names that are synonymous with wickedness in the modern mind. If you want to insult a city, just compare that city to Sodom. And you will have done that. Now listen. We know... Through experience, we know through the news that cities are difficult places. Cities are loud places. They're desperate places. They're places where crime multiplies, where the mafia is active, where drugs are sold, where prostitution is is rampant, where there are gangs. List of despicable stuff. We get it. That is, sometimes when you think of cities, that's what you think, right? New York City, Atlantic City, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, Miami. Have I, have I hit enough of them for you? Atlanta. Sometimes people talk about how bad America has become, and they say, you know, if God doesn't do something soon, I've heard people say, if God doesn't do something soon, he's going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. You know, they're trying to highlight, you know, our, our country's in bad shape. That's, that's what they're saying, and, and I get it. But you know what? It, it's pretty much always been that way. We're talking about Abraham. What page are you on in your pew Bible? Twelve. And we've already had a flood that wiped out all humanity. So it's pretty much always been this way. The Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun, right? Absolutely. So these cities had grown very wicked. Their their sins are very similar to the list that I I read, I'm sure. But there's more. More. Their sins are, are even more grievous. Listen to what Ezekiel understood were the great sins of Sodom. Are you ready? Hold on. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Now, this was the sin of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. When you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, are those the sins you have in mind? Arrogant? overfed and unconcerned with the poor and needy? See, Ezekiel's, that, that, those, were the, those were grievous sins. Now, when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, you think of sexual sin. Because that's kind of the way we've been trained. But the Bible is more expansive. It's fuller than that. God cares about more than sexual sin. 
He cares about the widow and the orphan and the needy. And when when we as a people, as a church, neglect those folks, that is of great concern to the Lord. Listen, in Ezekiel, the Lord said this in response to the way that Jerusalem was living. Okay, so you have Exodus 16, verse 49. If you go down just a couple of verses to verse 51, this is what the Lord says. Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. He's talking to Jerusalem. He says, you have done more detestable things than they have. And they have made your sisters seem righteous by all these things you have done. Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters. Because your sins were more vile than theirs, they appear more righteous than you. So then, be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. Whoa! Those are the Lord's words to Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, you are so detestable that you make Sodom look righteous. Go read about the sin of Jerusalem. Go read about the the reasons for the exile. And what are they? Over and over and over again. A failure to care for those in their midst who had great need. And a chasing after idols. That's the city that Abraham is pleading for. You might say, well, he's actually pleading that God would not destroy the righteous in the city and thereby spare the city. And I would just say, he's praying for the city. He's praying for the city because he hopes that the righteous in the city will have a leavening influence there and that they will win. There are a couple of things. Abraham stops at ten. Now, you can read ten commentators. You'll probably get ten reasons why they say Abraham stopped at ten. But there are probably a couple that are very reasonable. From the history of the Jewish people, we know that it only took ten people to form a synagogue. And so perhaps what Abraham was saying was, God, if there are ten there, right, and if you had a synagogue, then you had a group of people who were together, who believed and loved God. And if you had ten, then perhaps you had enough to have some momentum. They could reach out. They could be an influence. They could change their community for good. And, and they could, they could maybe turn the tide. So perhaps that's what Abraham was pleading for. God, if there, if there are ten there, would you spare the city? Would you hold off on destruction? Ten would give you hope. Perhaps that things could turn around. There's another thing to consider here. If Abraham had bargained one more time, what would he have asked? Lord, if there's one righteous there, would you spare the city? That would have been the most logical thing. Had he gone one more step, if there's one righteous inhabitant. And of course we know the answer, right? Can one righteous man do anything good? 
Can one righteous man turn things around? Absolutely. One righteous man has spared the entire church. One righteous man has redeemed us from the curse of the law. One righteous man can save many lives. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. So Abraham was pleading for a city. Let me ask you, are you pleading for cities? Are you pleading that the city will just be wiped out? Are you praying for the city? Are you praying for cities, for our cities? Praying for Greensboro, for Eatonton? Are you praying for Madison? Are you praying for the lake area? Are you praying that God will work in and through the righteous that are there? Don't we don't want him to, to delay his return. But Lord, we want you to keep gathering folks up. Don't stop. Don't quit being at work. Here's the third and final point. Abraham is pleading for the righteous. He's pleading that God would spare them. He's pleading that God would use them. I just said, Abraham didn't pray... He knew how bad, bad Sodom was, but he didn't pray for God to destroy Sodom. He prayed for the people that were there. There were righteous men and righteous women there, and, and he wanted them to turn the tide, he thought. And so he prayed for them. Are you praying for the righteous in the land to advance? Are you praying for the righteous to be a winsome army for the Lord in the world in which we live? I want you to consider this. The Lord sent out 11 disciples, apostles. 11. And with 11 men, He turned the world Upside down. Eleven men went out into the world and they began to make, to make disciples and they began to baptize them and they began to teach them about the Lord Jesus and His resurrection from the dead and His salvation. And they turned the world upside down. And Jesus instructed us essentially to pray that, didn't He? In, in, in his prayer that he, that he instructed the disciples not necessarily to pray, but how to pray. And there he said, right? Pray first, what? That God's name would be hallowed. That, that people would know God. That his name would be hallowed in all the earth. And then he prayed for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he told us to pray for that. Now, how does that happen? Let me tell you a couple of ways it doesn't happen. God's kingdom coming doesn't come through government intervention. Okay? Government is good, and government has been given to us uh, for our protection 
and to watch over us and to help provide for our basic necessities and those sorts of things. But government isn't advancing the kingdom of God. It, it, it isn't advanced. The kingdom coming isn't advanced by monuments on campuses and, and the like. It is advanced through the church and the love of Christ. That's how the kingdom is advanced. That is how the righteous advance the kingdom. Loving their neighbors as themselves. Listen, if you have not read um, the, uh, the book by Rosaria Butterfield, I, I encourage you to go and, and read it, the, uh, uh, the Secret Life of an Unlikely Convert, Rosaria Butterfield. It's a very short book. Rosaria Butterfield, in, in a thumbnail, was a liberal atheist professor at the University of Syracuse. And in her late 30s, having risen to tenure in that institution, at the height of her job, and the Lord converted her. And he converted her through the love of a local pastor. It didn't have to be a pastor. It could have been just the love of a local church member. But that's how she was converted. The most powerful tool the church has is the love of Christ. Matthew 15, Matthew 5, 16, right? In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Listen, the world advances its causes through hunger strikes, through marches. Sometimes those are necessary to call attention to things. Absolutely. Sometimes there needs to be a march. Sometimes there needs to be a boycott. But that's not the primary means the church possesses. The church possesses the love of Christ and shows it through her good deeds. Clarence Thomas gave a commencement address yesterday, and one line struck out for me. He said, At the risk of understating what is necessary to preserve liberty in our form of government, I think more and more that it depends on good citizens discharging their daily duties in their daily obligations. How about for us? It involves, it depends upon the citizens of the kingdom discharging their calling in their daily lives and in their daily obligations. Just a couple of just a couple of changes. Yes. In other words, keep chopping. In other words, keep loving. In other words, keep reaching out to your neighbor. In other words, keep feeding the hungry. In other words, keep loving the orphan. In other words, keep ministering to the widow. You want to change the world? You want to change Sodom? You want to change Greensboro, Eatonton, Madison, Atlanta, Miami? He's given us the prescription to do just that. The church advances the kingdom of God one good deed at a time under the influence of the grace of God. Let me ask you, are you pleading for the righteous? Like your father Abraham? Are you pleading for the name of God? Are you pleading for the city? Abraham did. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Father Abraham. Lord, um, without his intervention, without his submitting to you and to the call upon his life, where would we be? And so we thank you. Thank you for raising him up. Thank you for calling us out of darkness into your light. Would you give us a passion for the world, for the Sodoms, for the Gomorrahs, for ourselves? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.